Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you as wildfire season really gets moving here in the mountains of Utah. A quick bit of housekeeping. This is the final episode of Season 1 of Page Break. We've been running for a little over a year now and produced 49 episodes with over 75,000 downloads. You listeners have been fantastic, and I hope you'll be patient while I take the rest of the summer off to prepare for Season 2. A content warning. On this episode, we do talk a little bit about erotica, so if that makes you uncomfortable, please feel free to skip it. Now on with the show. My guest this week is author, editor, and game designer Shauna Germain. Shauna is best known as the co-founder, co-owner, and managing editor of Monty Cook Games. Over the course of her career, she's published everything from poems and articles to short stories and novels, as well as taught classes on publishing and writing. Her latest works include Numenera novels Tomorrow's Bones and The Night Clave. Shauna and I chat about her work at Monty Cook Games, her changes in creative focus, and the choices one has to make between writing time, publication, and a secure day job. We also discuss the tricky relationship that authors have with their reviews, from random Twitter comments all the way to professional trade publications. Enjoy my conversation with Shauna Germain. So I'm trying to remember if we've actually ever uh, kind of run into each other before. You know, I was trying to remember that too, because you look familiar, but the internet does that, right? Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> I was like, oh boy, I, I, I'm so I'm glad that you don't remember either. I do feel like you meet so many people now that it's really hard, especially if it's just a short, like, passing moment. You're like, oh, I don't know. What do I say? Have I met them before? <laughs> right. And there's so many people that you kind of you'll you'll say you'll you'll kind of you know two ships passing in the night kind of thing where you just like you'll have a mutual friend that will say, introduce you at a convention and you'll say hi and shake hands and then you won't see each other again right yeah that's so true right <laughs> <laughs> okay so you um so you are the co-founder of monty cook games yes which is super super cool. I mean, they're like I I am not super well keyed into the gaming community, but it's a big enough name that I immediately recognize it. And I I was kind of curious about that. I've talked to a few gaming people for this podcast, and I I I was very curious about kind of the genesis of that. Where where does one where does one start off starting a gaming company? <laughs> Well, first, you must know nothing. <laughs> That's the first requirement. Uh, so it sort of picks up in the middle of my career in, in, in an interesting way in that I was editing a, co- a technical coffee roasting magazine on one side. And uh, on the other, I was writing for um, like World of Warcraft official magazine and things like that. So I was writing about gaming, but I wasn't writing 
game design and I wasn't really working in RPGs. It was more computer games. Um, and then when Monty was thinking about kicking off a, a Kickstarter for this little game that he wasn't sure anyone was going to like called Numenera. And we were talking about it. And I was like, gosh, that sounds so incredible. That sounds really wonderful. I, I totally want to, I'd love to edit that. And we were having this whole conversation. We got really excited about it. And then we kickstarted it. And, you know, it was at the time, one of the <laughs> record-breaking kickstarters at half a million dollars. And we didn't know what to do. <laughs> we were just sort of so flabbergasted. And it was so unexpected that we were like, okay, now what, right? We knew how to, you know, we knew how to work in the writing and editing and all of those processes, but, you know, we'd never distributed a, a book of this sort of giant size to this number of people. And at that point we, we had some really intense conversations, like, do we need to just start a company and like talked about the commitment and talked about what that meant as though we knew anything back then 10 years ago, which by the way, we, <laughs> we did not, despite thinking that we did. Um, and we landed on, yes, we needed to start a company. We needed to hire some people to make sure that we made our promises to the Kickstarter backers. Um, and so it just sort of happened from there. It was not something that we sort of expected or planned. We certainly didn't know that 10 years on, we'd still be doing it and have a team of 12 people. So uh, it's been kind of a wild ride in a lot of different ways. Well, that That is absolutely wild. I uh, One of those little aspects of things like Kickstarter that I find incredibly fascinating is this idea that, I mean, obviously there are lots and lots of Kickstarters that don't succeed or that maybe, you know, that hit exactly kind of the milestones that they hope to hit. But there's also this tiny portion of Kickstarters that do something that, that take like a little idea and then suddenly turn it into requiring economies of scale. Yeah. And that is a that is an interesting kind of part of business of of small business suddenly f being forced to be bigger that I find really interesting. So, did you guys find that that was a a big struggle, or or did you find the process of kind of scaling up for more people to be you know, relatively simple compared to what you thought it was going to be? <laughs> well, you know, it's it's so interesting because Kickstarter, of course, comes with its own set of like WTF moments. Like we couldn't find for a long time an accountant who understood that we were going to get all this money in a big chunk this year, but all of our expenses were going to come the following year when we sent the book to the printer and those kinds of things. And so they'd be like, well, you made half a million dollars in this Kickstarter. And we were like, yeah, but next year we're going to have huge expenses. So like, please don't make us pay taxes on that because it's not going to stay. And so even from the beginning, it was, it, you know, doing it via Kickstarter was such a wonderful opportunity. And yet at the same time, it brought so many interesting challenges. Um, and then like any small business, we just, we worked so hard for the first five years because we were understaffed and we had people who were super passionate and, you know, people want, you know, everyone wanted it to succeed. And, you know, I mean, the number of hats that each of us wore in the beginning as we tried to do everything was incredible. Um, and then I think when we sort of hit, and then when we hit the sort of five or six year mark, things started to shift. It felt like we sort of had grown into an adult company and things got a little bit easier, but there's always sort of rocky points through there. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, 
never what we expected that was difficult and things that we expected to be difficult sometimes surprised us with how delightfully easy they were and most of the latter was because we have an amazing team of people who sort of stepped up or had this hidden ability that they could just be like hey oh i know how to do that let me do that and so um it's it's all the good things that have happened on our team have been because of the awesome people well and that's i think that's incredibly important when you when you kind of expand beyond just yourself or yourself and a partner, you suddenly run into needing to trust other human beings to do a lot of things that that could get you fined a lot of money if you don't do it right, for instance. Right. And and I this is this is one of my one of my big preoccupations on the podcast is this intersection of business and creativity, which I find really quite fascinating and which a lot of people really don't like. <laughs> The intersection or the focus on it? <laughs> um, no, the, the intersection. I mean, hopefully they like to focus on it because uh, <laughs> I was going to say I find it interesting. So <laughs> I, I do too, right? Uh, so, so a lot of people, a lot of creative people, like I find, tend to be quite resentful of the fact that they have to kind of exist in this real world and kind of this <laughs> capitalist society, which you know, like. I mean, you can have arguments about that kind of goodness, badness thing all over the place. But, you know, the fact is, is what we work within at the moment. And I, I don't know, I, I find that really interesting. And I, this idea, something, something that I've always struggled with is this idea of, of working creatively with other people. I'm really, I'm really quite jealous of it in these, in these uh, sort of, fields related fields that are uh that tend to be much more collaborative mm, game writing yeah. is one of them um screenwriting another oh, one yeah. especially television yeah. but like i i don't know if i've got that kind of uh temperament to be able to handle you know actually having like my baby worked on by <laughs> other people right. and and i'm curious how you deal with Ooh. that there's so many there's so many little tangents in that topic because it's such a big topic um so i think I think that there's there's two parts of that that really interest me. And, and one is, uh, the first one is that crossover of business and creativity. Like it's one of those situations where for me, I'm I'm quite good at the business stuff, just sort of naturally. Like it's one of those things that, ha- that just, I don't really know how, because I, I don't have a lot of experience with it. But like, I kind of get, maybe because when you're a freelancer for a long time, which I was before, you, you start to understand marketing and I wrote marketing copy. And so like, there's lots of parts of business that make sense to me intuitively. And in fact, because the business needed me in that aspect, I found myself letting go of the creative work to do the business work because it was easier. Because like, if you know, I know there are people out there who say that creative work is easy, but I am not one of them. I find it very difficult. It requires a lot of deep thought. And so I, for me, the hardest part sometimes was, was pulling myself away from sort of putting out fires or solving problems in order to actually get the work done. Because I, I sort of developed this mentality of, well, when all the fires are out, I will, I will get the creative work done. And of course, the fires are never out in a small business. Um, and so <laughs> I feel like that's, that's, the, that's the struggle for me is, is when you're good at something and the company needs you, it's hard for me in particular to say no and focus on, it feels almost selfish to focus on the creative thing. But of course, the creative thing is what keeps the company going in many ways. And so um, so that's that's the constant sort of tightrope that I'm on in those spaces. Uh, the other thing about is collaboration. I also, oh gosh, I crave collaboration so much. It sounds so fascinating, but I'm such an introvert. 
that I spend, you know, 20 minutes with someone and I'm like, I absolutely love you and adore you, but I have to go recharge my battery. <laughs> there's something so amazing when, you know, I have lots of friends who work in, you know, in TV and they sit around in the writer's room and they talk about those experiences. And I get so like, it's a thing I want in another me <laughs> because the me that I am, it isn't even about my creative process. It's just about like, I find that I can't do deep work. I can't do deep thinking as easily in that sort of collaborative space. And even as a game designer, I have only just in the last couple of years started to learn how to collaborate because typically, at least in our company, our designers find something they're excited about and then they go off and do it. And then, you know, they might collaborate with the editor or whatever, but it's their project. Um, and so learning how to collaborate with other designers on a project has been a very interesting experience in a lot of ways and it has actually taught me a lot and I've grown a lot, but I also am still gritting my teeth about <laughs> sort of having to do it sometimes. Oh, that's great. I I actually, that really resonates with me because I've never really thought about it that way, but that idea of... Um that idea of spending a bunch of time in like a writer's room for a TV show, you know, that is intimidating because mm. even though I consider myself very creative, I consider myself very good at what I do. The idea of trying to do it like on demand with other people <laughs> around me, man, that, that is terrifying. Yeah. Like I, like I, I feel like my creativity in that sort of situation would be like, you know, have breakfast with these people and then go off and do my own thing. Right. Be really inspired by the conversation and yeah. then go do my own thing. I think too, there's a different, like people write differently and all of my thinking comes through the process of writing. Like I couldn't come up with a plot or a character or, or anything if I wasn't actually in the process of writing. I'm very word and sound focused. And so I, I, I do feel like I'd get in a room with a bunch of really awesome, inspiring, creative people. And I'd, be, I'd just be like, uh, <laughs> let me type and see what my brain comes up with. And so I do think that there are people who can just do this really amazing interactive experience of creation, but I'm not very good at it. And it's, it's true. Even in like, when I'm playing a game, like a role-playing game, my character, I'm kind of slow on that process because my creativity doesn't come through, through anything, but but sort of writing it down. And so I'm kind of a slow player even in that way. So it's interesting to see how that affects a whole bunch of different parts of my life. I, I have the exact same problem with RPGs. I, um, I, I always feel really self-conscious about it. Like when, I, when I'm trying to play with like my high school buddies or something, there is this like expectation of, oh, Brian does this professionally. He's going to be like <laughs> on his game all the time. Or at least that's what's in my head. Sure, in my yeah. head, I think that that's what they think. And, uh, and so there, there's just, there's moments where the DM will throw something at me that I should have seen from a mile away. And I'm just kind of like, wait, what, what, what you're talking to me now? And I, I, I just fall apart. I fall apart under the kind of that scrutiny, yep. but, but some people feed on that. And I, oh, yeah. I genuinely, I'm very jealous of that type of person. They're so fun to watch. And I take so much inspiration from having them in my group because it's just like, here's the thing. And, and they have 20 or 30 different creative ideas about how to do a thing. And they're all awesome. And I'm still going, wait, what, <laughs> what are we doing? Now, I uh, I saw that you have worked kind of on a crazy variety of things. <laughs> and and I found that very fun because because and I've I've discussed this with people on the podcast before that me as an epic fantasy writer, epic fantasy writers have a tendency to kind of get locked in 
two big long contracts that you're working on yeah. one universe for a long time. And and that's the experience that I've had with my career so far. And I I'm really interested in the type of writer who is able to jump between um, not just kind of genres or types of writing, but like, but like, like the difference between writing a poem and writing a novel, you know, <laughs> like these are, these are crazy things to me in terms of kind of your brain shifting gears creatively. Um, and I was, I was kind of curious, kind of from the beginning, where, where are you most comfortable? Cause you seem to have done pretty much everything uh, <laughs> across that creative spectrum. So that's a really interesting question because it, the answer is when I get comfortable with something, I leave <laughs> because really? I get bored. Um, and that, so, so when I hear someone, you know, like you talk about doing like these really epic, wonderful, epic sagas and, and big worlds and, and lots of books in the same world or in the same series, I, I love reading them. But when I think about writing that, that's my absolute hell. That is absolutely hell for me. And the reason is because I find myself I get bored when something is when I when I feel like I know how to do something or when something feels the same. And so the place weirdly that I am the most comfortable is the place where I'm just on that cusp of can I actually do this thing? Do I have the skills I need to do this thing? Can I learn the skills? How do I like I really like that place. Although when I'm in the middle of it, I really don't like that place. So it's a huge conundrum. <laughs> but I really like that place of stretching myself all the time. And so I feel like I've done this sort of process where I've kind of gotten to what I consider to be my pinnacle of whatever subgenre or section of type of writing I'm doing. And then I'm like, you know, I don't want to just keep writing the same thing over and over. I don't want to do this thing that I know how to do so easily. It's time for me to find a different um, genre or type or style. And, uh, I don't know. I, I think it's so, it's so fascinating to me because I, I want to be the kind of person who can write like a trilogy, but am I ever going to be able to, I just, I don't know. I, I suppose I could do it if I broke it, like Gideon the ninth in the way they broke their second book so much, or like, you know, there's sort of pseudo trilogies where you don't, that interests me. But the idea of writing in the same world for <laughs> longer than, I don't know, 80,000 words, I'm just like, oh, no, please don't make me do that. <laughs> no, I'm I'm curious. Do you think that's because you uh, do you think maybe that's because you uh, really love the world building process? Or well, I mean, I, I guess my brain's going there first, because my tendency is to say I'm going to put tons of work into world building something. But once that work is in. I don't want to leave that world for a long time because I've put all I've front loaded all of this work and now I want to spend the time to play in this sandbox and not have to do that work again for five years. And th that's where my brain goes. And I'm curious yeah. if there's any kind of thought in your brain that's the, that's the opposite. I can totally see that for me. Um, oh, I, I love this idea that you build the sandbox and play in it for a really long time. I don't want to do it, but I love the idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, world building comes through the writing process. And so like, I, I find that that's the great joy um, is, is just sort of starting to encapsulate. And I'm also really voice focused. So I try to encapsulate the voice in every piece that I do. And, you know, I can only consistently carry a voice for so long before it starts to disintegrate or, or bleed into something else. And so I find that the, you know, everything that I think of, every idea I think of seems to have a, a concrete shape and, and those shapes just are smaller 
Um, but I do think a lot of it is that like, I love starting a thing and being like, okay, what's this new world? What's, what are these people like? What are the creatures like? What's the language? Like I'm fascinated by that process of, you know, do they, do they live on the sea and therefore their language sounds different so it can carry across water? Do they live in the mountains and their language sounds different because they need to, you know, do that. And like, I just, I, I fall in love with that process. And so I want to do it as often as I can. Um, I suspect there's also a little bit of just an inability to stick with a thing because that's sort of a like I've lived all over the world and I've like had a bunch of different jobs. And I mean, I sort of um, I just heard this really beautiful phrase the other day that was the purgatory of the mundane. And I was thinking about that, of course, in terms of, you know, still being in COVID situations, but also like I think that I've spent a lot of my life sort of running from the purgatory of the mundane and doing something um, that I've already done feels like that to me. And I know that there are tons of people who feel that's their that's their best space. They love it. They want to do the same thing. And that's awesome. It just, it's just not for me. It doesn't, doesn't ping the creativity passion the way that, that something new and harder does. Yeah. I, I found that people, um, people with kind of creative backgrounds and creative kind of styles, they seem almost to regard that idea of, uh, of kind of life safety. I don't know. Does that make sense? Like career safety. Yeah. They almost regard that in a very different way from normal people. Um, normal people <laughs> yeah, normal people say, Oh, there's, you know, like, Oh, I'm going to work my way up from employee to manager to so-and-so. And they, they, they climb companies and that's, that's kind of how they operate. And they like that because they, mm-hmm. there's a security to it. There's a, there's a security in feeling like they're going to have the same paycheck every two weeks for, you know, that escalates, you know, for the rest of their right. lives. And, and I feel like creative people almost don't even <laughs> like, sometimes I forget that's a thing. <laughs> like I'll, I'll be talking to my friends and they'll be like, Oh yeah, I'm going to, I'm hoping for a raise. If they don't give me a raise this year, I'm definitely going to this other company who's been kind of eyeballing me. And my brain's just kind of going, wow, you guys have like benefits and things like that. <laughs> uh, and I, I don't know. It's it, maybe, maybe to be creative, you kind of almost have to have a little bit of a disconnect from your own, uh, uh, your own financial security. <laughs> yeah. I think I suspect it's different for everyone. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, I can remember when I was like, I spent a lot of years like bartending, which is a weirdly lucrative business when you're young and, and, you know, was, and and that allowed me like two days off to work on my writing. And I was aware that I was making this trade-off all the time where I, I didn't have as much time to write as I wanted to, but I also didn't need to care as much about whether or not things sold because I had this sort of other job, which I think, I think a lot of people do, right? It buys us so much freedom as creatives, but I think that there's also a question of values. Like my values are not to be rich. That's never been my value. My value is to be be safe and be able to buy food and all those things so that I can do what I love. And so I think I do think it's sometimes just a, maybe creatives are more aware of what their values are and sometimes choose have the have the ability to choose around those values. Like I wouldn't trade, you know, my time for to be super rich because my time is is not endless and I want to do what I want to do with that time even if it means that you know, I'm I'm never going to fly private or anything like that. Um, So I don't know, I feel like there's this interesting thing where we are always making this choice or or at least asking the question of what are my values? And is what am I giving up 
if I'm going to do a, you know, nine to five kind of job and that kind of stuff. Do you, um, do you think about your career uh, much in, in kind of a larger abstract way? Oh, interesting. Um, uh, do I think about, yes, I think so. I mean, boy, that's a, (laughs) you're asking such good questions. I feel like, oh, I should have prepared. Um, (laughs) I do think about my career, but more so I think about what I, what I'm deeply in love with or deeply excited about or passionate about or, or what feels a little dangerous in some way. Um, And so I do think about my career, but, uh, but also like, you know, there's, there's two parts of my brain. And one part is the person that runs a company. And so I'm thinking at that point about like, you know, is it time to give our employees a a raise a cost of living raise because inflation is going up? And do they have good health insurance? And, And, you know, those kinds of things are interesting to think about as we talk about real jobs versus creative, because I'm, I'm helping make those decisions, right on that space. And then there's this part of me that is also the writer creative part who doesn't want to think about those things very much at all. And, and so do I think like, I think, yes, I think about my career, but I, I try to keep it focused on me and my passions, because like, we all know, right, careers are tumultuous. And you know, the internet can take you down in a day and and ruin you for, you know, I don't know, 36 hours or however long the internet mob lasts before everything falls apart. And I feel like there is no way I can plan my career outside of myself. So I can only do what I love and hope that it's good enough and important enough to the people who also love it to do well, which is really not a career advice recommendation in any way. <laughs> Although maybe it is. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to go all cliche and be like, do what you love and you'll get the money will come because, you know, we know that that's not true. But um, but yeah, balancing those balancing those goals allows me to really think about what I'm what I'm excited about. Hey, Page Break listeners, Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to patreon.com pagebreak, where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. Uh, what what is a dangerous decision that you have made before? <laughs> um, you know, it's so I have made dangerous decisions in that I have, you know, left. So I my my career path is sort of like rise to the top of a thing. Right. So I was a newspaper reporter for a while and I kind of was at that sort of as high as I could go in that. And then I quit it. And I started, helped start this feminist women's magazine that didn't have any money and had no support. And we were all volunteering. And, you know, then that got grants and, and kind of rose to this high as I was going to go. And I, I was done with that. And I started writing erotica and then got into like all the best of erotica. And I was kind of done with that. And I quit that, even though that was very well paying. And I was like, I'm going to write poems for a while. And so I feel like I've, I have throughout my career sort of made these like financially dangerous, right? Career dangerous. And also career dangerous because when people fall in love with your writing in a particular space, like, you know, I had a, a lot of people who sort of followed me and and were interested in my erotic work like when you stop doing that 
they're mad at you. They can be mad at you because you have now started writing something else that doesn't interest them and they want to know when you're going back to the old thing. But like the thing that's hard for me to talk about or hard for me to explain is that I, I couldn't think of it. For example, I couldn't think of any more ways to write about sex. Like if I kept writing in the erotica field, it wasn't going to be good. Like I could just tell that I had, I had hit the point where I didn't have anything left to say. I didn't have any more stories to explore. And so it didn't feel dangerous on like a personal passionate level, but it felt dangerous on a financial sort of career path level to kind of just keep leaving things. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's, that, that is a decision I've made a bunch of times. I also gave up everything and sold everything and moved to Scotland once to write horror fiction and wrote a book of horror short stories. And, and you know, that was dangerous in lots of ways, not the least of which I got bit by a chick and got Lyme disease while I was there. But, oh, <laughs> but like, you know, I mean, I don't, I feel like, I guess dangerous is also relative, right? What's da- I feel like we're very willing to be wary of what's dangerous of our, of our career or of our finances and less wary of what's dangerous to like our soul and our heart and who we are you know it's it's a it's just we're expected to pick on those first two and i feel like the third is the one that's really important i i find that really fascinating because i was i i genuinely was going to ask you about the kind of jump around in in genre because I did notice that you had like a a period of time where you put out a bunch of erotica and then it just kind of, it started and then it kind of stopped. (laughs) And I I thought that was such a funny thing to see in someone's, you know, basically someone's resume. Uh, And, and I, the, the other funny thing I thought about it was that you didn't, as far as I could tell, you didn't switch to a pseudonym for anything. This wasn't, this was, this was still very much you and you hadn't changed you just stopped doing that one thing and i i was curious if you if you you kind of already touched on this a little bit but i was curious if you you get kind of blowback when you switch from something especially something that is uh i guess adult niche as erotica to you know like writing for you know writing games for families and for kids and things like that yeah you know it's it's interesting because we had a big conversation about it when we were creating no thank you evil which is the first kids game that i did and like you know in in house at the company we're a super supportive team and everyone's quite you know liberal and so like people were like we'll just if, if people give us blowback, you know, everyone has our support and it'll all work out and we're not worried about it. Right. It's not an issue. And and we didn't really get a lot of blowback. Now, I think times are changing and we're becoming more Puritan and, you know, lots of other things that we'll just set over here on the side because the world is bad over here. We'll talk about other things that are more interesting. Um, and so I think that 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 could change. I mean, I don't think it will because, like, for example, my writing about sex was so long ago that people aren't going to dig it up and, and make a fuss. But, but you know, I mean, people people are always up in arms. Um, I had, had so many people yelling at me in general when I was writing erotica because I was going to hell. And I had someone show up on my porch once and tell me I was going to go to hell because I wrote lesbian erotica. And, and I sort of craved those old days, right, where that was like the worst that was happening. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, we, I haven't, um, I, I sort of have felt like it's part of my, part of my job in the world as a writer, as a creative is to be there, is to be present and be proud of the things I create, not in a, like, this is the perfect book kind of way. Cause of course not, but in this sort of like, it's okay to talk about sex. It's okay to talk about this. It's okay to talk about that. It's awesome to play games. Like all the things that have kind of been swept under the radar or frowned upon or dismissed, like if I'm going to put my heart into a thing and earn money from that thing, 
I feel like personally, and I know everyone's decisions are different. I feel like I should be willing to stand up for that thing, right? I should be there. I should have my name on it. I should be present. You know, if I get flack, I should be willing to stand up and be like, this is, that's, this is why that flack is really dumb. Um, so yeah. And also like, there's a privilege there that comes from like, my family is supportive. I'm white and middle-class, you know, I'm bi, but like nobody can tell unless I tell them. And again, I'm very open about that because I want people to feel like that's just normal. Um, and so I like, I understand that I have a lot of privilege, you know, I don't have kids that other people who use pseudonyms don't have those, that safety net. Um, and so I'm certainly not judging people who, who make different decisions. It just felt like the right one for me. Well, that's, that's really interesting. I, it's so funny because so much of what you're saying kind of like it, it goes against the grain of my, all of my instincts as like a, interesting. as, as a business person. Um, and it's, and I don't mean this in a bad way because I find the kind of the, that kind of decision-making, gosh, I'm so jealous of it. I'm jealous of that ability to say this thing, I'm no longer interested in it. I I'm oh, going to work on yeah. something else. Um, or, or saying like, okay, so like literally like right during the middle of the pandemic, I had this thought of like, man, I'm feeling a little burnt out. I need to switch it up. And I genuinely had a thought of what if I just, you know, like screw around and write some erotica just for fun. And then I like, and I had this like for a good week, I was thinking about this and I thought, and, and the conclusion I came to was, you know what, if, if I actually tried to put something out there, even under a pseudonym, even hiding everything and anyone found out, I, I don't want even a single email from people giving me crap about, oh, you're, you're using your <laughs> powers for evil or whatever. <laughs> and I, I just, that like, yeah. and it just broke the whole idea down completely. Uh, and, and I just thought, you know, I don't need that. And I kind of, I kind of cling to what little security I've able to kind of, you know, scrounge out in this weird career I have. You know, that's so valid though, right? I mean, everyone's, I think everyone's perception of what's right for them is so different. And the fact that we're asking is actually the important part, right? Like the answers don't matter half as much as like, hey, like no bullshit. What, what would this affect? Or what would it take to do this? Or what, you know, what are the repercussions of this? And am I willing to like, sit down with them and deal with them on a regular old Monday. Like I think asking those questions is God, it's so vital. And uh, it save it, it saves so much potentially bad stuff in the long run, even if you end up choosing in a, maybe a direction that you wish you hadn't. Right. But at least thinking about it allows you to say, all right, well, these are the things that could happen. Am I willing to, am I willing to sacrifice or am I willing to deal with that? And if the answer is no, then God, yeah, don't absolutely don't do it. Although I totally want to read your own account. I uh, I imagine it would probably be way way too much world building and way too little sex. Oh, that's awesome though. <laughs> Erotic world building, I like it. <laughs> right. I uh, I I I joked on a panel once uh, because uh, I I got this new universe that just came out a couple of weeks ago. Now that we're recording this, and um, and the like, one of the main centers of the universe is this is glass that um is is made so anybody can use magic uh if they've got these little bits of glass that accentuate human properties and i made a joke on a panel that that we were talking about what you do and don't put into a book and my joke was <laughs> this world definitely has sex toys made of god glass 
I'm yeah. never going to mention them on the page. <laughs> they're never going to they're never going to show up in my books because my books tend to be pretty PG-13, but that's definitely a thing that exists. That's awesome. God glass. I love it. That's super cool. And that that kind of thing that is an interesting like thought. I I sometimes come back to is you know you cuz we a lot of us we take writing classes we we learn from other writers we talk through you know kind of our processes um and what you're going to have to decide what you want in a book in terms of in terms of content honestly is one of those things you really have to deal with at some point and you might not even think about it for the first right. many years of your career uh but there's going to be a point at which you realize oh like this thing that I just wrote, it could be kind of offensive to certain people. Um, whether I agree with them or not, they're still maybe my readers. And 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 that kind of thing. But also, you know, like what you're going to have to deal with in terms of reader feedback. Uh, <laughs> and and sometimes it's positive and sometimes it's negative. Yeah. But, but, but I feel like when you're young, when you're a young writer, it's something you don't think about ever. Oh, that's interesting because I, I feel like, yeah, when I go back and look at some of my early stuff, I think I was just, you know, I mean, you're just putting your heart on the page or you're putting your experience or you're putting playing with language or whatever you're doing. Like, I definitely, I mean, God, when I started, <laughs> I I mean, we were still doing paper envelopes for submissions and the internet was just barely a thing. And like, I couldn't even have imagined this sort of access that people have now to you know, just everything. And so, yeah, there was definitely a lot less thought about people being able to reach you in that way. I mean, mostly people had to mail you a letter or show up at your house, which, you know, it actually takes a lot of work. And so very few people are willing to do that. But, you know, to come send you an email now or come back at you in the inter- and social media is like, just so easy for people that they can just I just read this great essay this morning by Roxane Gay. Uh, called the called feedback loop um and it was all about that like how accessible we as creatives are to you know people whose opinions we shouldn't even have access to like they don't matter to us right they're they're just they're just spouting off these opinions that make us that have the potential to make us feel really crappy for no no reason like why do we need to know that why do we why do they need to have access to us like it there's just a lot of questions around the world today that like ah you know it's hard because all the good things, it's like playing the lottery because every once in a while you get this really great response from, from a reader and you're like, oh, my heart, you're amazing. Thank you. I love you. You got it. You know, I, I'm so glad I could affect your life. And then, you know, you get just this little horrible note from somebody that you don't even know and care about. And it it drags you down for such a long time. And I, I feel like I keep things around for those once in a million lottery tickets with nice people saying nice things and got to go through the dregs to get it. <laughs> Well, and it's interesting kind of what you said about the kind of the connectedness and the, the yeah, like that ability to get feedback instantaneously um, and and see what people like or don't like, you know, if, if you care to look for it. Um, you know, I thought I had I thought that as of probably my third book, I had totally gotten over the checking Amazon, checking, Goodreads, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. For my second trilogy, I don't think I did at all. You know, maybe a little bit on the first book, but but generally, I felt really good about having gotten away from that. Man, for the new book, it's a new world, <laughs> and so my brain's like, "Oh, you better find out if they oh, like yeah. it." And and so I kept checking and checking, and I've, it's only like the last like three days I've been kind of like, "Okay, slow down, 
you don't need to look at reviews ever again. Yeah. Yeah. But but what's wild is that I can do that, you know, like you know, like 15 years ago, you wouldn't have had, you know, these this ability to just look up reviews of your own books. Right. It's so true. You would have like only if you were big enough to make it into one of the print publications that reviewed things. Right. And then it was very thoughtful. And that's what they did for a living. And even if they like dragged you through the mud, at least you were getting, you know, people we're writing about you in ways that were interesting. <laughs> well, well, and it's what's funny about those the the trade reviews is that nowadays they get so many books to review that at oftentimes like I'll read a review and I'll be like, "Oh, I got a starred review. That's amazing." And I'll read and I'll go, "This person clearly did not read the book." Oh no. They they clearly oh, no. looked at it and said, "Yeah, this is the type of thing I'd like. I'll give it a starred review." And wow. and it makes you feel kind of crappy because you're like, does. "Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sympathetic because they're so busy, but also you're like, come on, guys, this is like your job. Yeah. Yeah. I do feel like sometimes I pick up a book that got reviewed and I, and I you know, everyone's taste is different, but still I'm like, really? <laughs> this is, this is the one you liked? <laughs> oh, it's absolutely bizarre. Um, the, uh, the other thing with that kind of, that interconnectedness of is, is that it, it jumps into uh, something I, I know, noticed for this new book that I had come out was that I, that the, they were sending review copies to a ton of people who had never read my books before, um, which is really good. You know, you yeah. want that access, mm -hmm. but also you get this weird crossing of genres and you'll see like a review pop up for an epic fantasy novel that from someone who normally like you scroll through and they're like, Oh, they like do, you know, YA they do <laughs> romance why did they get one of these books? But, you know, like that's sent out, that's great. And, and, but you see this crossing of genres, you see this strange sort of, you know, people who under normal circumstances probably would never pick up your book. Right. Um, and they, they grab it, uh, they get it from the publisher and, uh, and then suddenly they're, you know, they're talking about these things and I'm like, and, and you're trying to be like, oh, well, you don't engage with this sort of thing, right? You know, obviously. Right. <laughs> um, and, and you don't. But in your brain, you're kind of shadow boxing this At invisible night, like, person. <laughs> yeah. Dear reviewer. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I, I feel like there, I mean, my favorite reviews are the ones that are, that start out with like, I don't read this kind of book, but you're like, no, just don't read it then. That's Okay. Um, my favorite review ever that I got was a one-star review on Amazon for Best Lesbian Erotica. And the review said, these are all women having sex. I don't know why it's all women in this book. <laughs> and I was like, it says Best Lesbian Erotica in the title. What did you expect? Like, I found it so delightful. It just, it, it sort of changed the way I look at reviews for the rest of my life because it was so in insidious and insipid that I was just like, okay. I never have to believe a bad review ever again from someone who clearly is not paying attention. Yeah. There's actually something really comforting about those moments when you realize this person has far lower uh, kind of um, uh, just this person doesn't kind of you know, read like I do. Clearly, they are either skimming or glancing or something. Uh, and, and you feel kind of re relieved, right? You're just like, right. oh, well, they 
they, I can, I, in the back of my brain, I can call them a moron and move on with my life. Yeah. You know, Brene Brown, I don't know if you have read her stuff, but she has this really great philosophy that like, if someone's not in the ring fighting with you, you don't have to take their punches. And I really like, she doesn't say it. She's much more eloquent than that, but, but that's how I think of it is if you're not in here doing the level of reading and writing and thinking about stories that I am, I don't have to take your punches because I spend a lot of time reading and writing and thinking about stories. And if you do too, then I value your opinion so much, right? I want to hear how to get better. I want your feedback. I love your critique. But if you don't, then I don't, I can make the choice to not bear the brunt of whatever you bring. And so like, I just think, I think about that all the time of like, has someone, you know, I spent three years writing this book and someone didn't actually read it and spent five minutes telling me how horrible it was. Do I have to take that punch? No, I totally don't, right? I can just walk away. And I think that's really useful too, but hard, right? I sound like I've already, I always react so, <laughs> so well to negativity, but of course I don't, right? You, you know, the unexpected ones sting and you're just like, oh, ouch. And, and like, you, you know, we said, you want to reply or you want to say something, you want to justify that you're, or, or even be like, oh no, am I just, am I really that bad? Is that, that's the place that sometimes gets to me. It's like, oh no, I'm, I, I have this very tenuous grip on whether or not I'm good at what I do. And you just, you just shook that grip all to pieces. And how do I get that back? And so there's, it isn't quite as easy as I make it sound, but it helps me to kind of keep that in mind sometimes. Well, the most crushing reviews are always the things that mention, they don't even have to mention it in great detail, but mention whatever it is that you are insecure about as a writer. <gasps> yes. <laughs> The, the moment that review says, you know, such and such, you know, like such and such is is not quite grasping this one character. And that's the character you worked the hardest on because yep. <laughs> you didn't think you were doing it right. And you're like, oh, I failed all that work. And I failed. Yep. Oh, I am. Yep. <laughs> that is the worst. That's the very worst. But there's there's the kind of um, there's the opposite side of that ecosystem where you as a consumer you kind of understand that reviews exist for a reason and mm -hmm. and it helps people find books and it helps people avoid books that they don't want. You know, it's just like me looking at the reviews for a restaurant I'm going to go to. Right. And so you, you try to not take it personally because yeah. Yeah, it's just part of life. It is right. And, and, you know, there's a, there's a, there's that adage about growing a thick skin, which I do think is really important for creatives. Like I can remember when I, I used to work on an ambulance and, and as a volunteer firefighter. And I can remember one of the paramedics when I was in training um, was telling me about sort of the God complex that paramedics have to have, where you have to like have all this thick skin, but at the same time, you have to know, you have to be willing to know that at any moment you're going to fail and in your failure, someone's going to die. Right. And I think about that all the time as a creative too, like this idea that I need to have thick skin, but I also need to be willing at all times to accept that I have failed or that I haven't done what I hoped I'd do or that this project is, isn't going to work or that people aren't going to like it. And so there's this, there's this weird and interesting ego balance of I, I'm doing my best and that might be awesome. And even in doing my best, it might also be awful. And, and how do you keep those two things in yourself all the time without tipping over, especially when people are, you know, you're sort of, people are talking to you on the internet sometimes you're just like i don't know it's a very it's a very fine balance to to keep producing i think that there's so many hurdles to us 
continuing to be creative and continuing to make what we love. And, you know, it's like if you jump over this hurdle today, it, it somehow grows bigger and smacks you in the face tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. that maybe you didn't see right at the beginning. Well, that's interesting. Um, so I think this is challenge. Let me tackle the changes part first and see if I can see any challenges. So the changes, I think, <laughs> like so many of the changes are good, despite what sometimes it seems like when you might look at gaming, social media, because of course the, the sort of crap rises to the top and all that. But like we have such better representation and diversity and inclusion. And like, I know that we have so far to go and, and, you know, I don't know if we'll ever achieve what I would like to see the industry achieve, but like we have so many more people, not just playing games, but creating games, working in games and and creating their own products and some of that is crowdfunding and some of that is you know platforms like itch um dot io and like there's just so many great um there's so many great changes happening and that it's sort of not the old white cis hetero guys club anymore and i think that we're getting better games for it i mean there's these amazing games that are coming out from from individual creators and and creators who are doing things in small groups that we never ever would have seen because they didn't have the platform people didn't know how to get in there were too many gatekeepers so that's like a huge change that we're seeing and it's so it's so good for gaming and part of it is because the mm, there's the, the conflict that hopefully is pushing the sort of the bad eggs out farther and farther until and, and they eventually just sort of go, I don't know, make their own thing somewhere else. But, but, but that's the big one for me is, and, and tied into that, like I said, is crowdfunding, which is giving lots of people opportunities to make even really cool, interesting, small games that, that get big followings and, and win awards and all kinds of things. And there's some really great, um, organizations out there that are doing work to help provide opportunities for marginalized creators. And we're seeing a lot more of that, which makes me super happy. And of course, with D&D's explosion over the last, you know, five years in particular, it's sort of had this re-explosion, I guess. It's thankfully, it's 
it means it's bringing all the, you know, sort of boats up with the, with the tide in that way. And so I think lots of companies are experiencing sort of secondary success on the heels of D and D sort of getting so big and, and that's great, right? The more people that play games, the more creative the world, the more empathetic the world, you know, we want all of these things. Um, I think the challenge that the challenges that we did not see coming perhaps are, um, uh, you know, uh, the obvious one for us right now is is the effects that COVID's had on on prices and supply chain. Everything's running late, and when you work on Kickstarter time and you make promises to your backers, you know, at least we have a global excuse, I guess, for for being late, right? And that thing, there's no cargo ships, or you know, something's stuck in the Suez Canal, and there's a crisis, and there's another pandemic. You know, I mean, it's just the world is just such a <laughs> It's such a disaster that it it sort of feels like the difference between calling your boss at work and be like, I'm sick <laughs> and being like, the building's on fire. I can't come to work. Right. One is really obvious and everyone knows you're telling the truth. <laughs> um, so I think that the pandemic and and the world state of the world has been unexpected and difficult in those ways. You know, you sometimes just getting products made outside of our our company in when you put it in someone else's hands who knows when you're going to see it ever again, or if it's going to end up in the bottle of, bottom of, you know, some ocean somewhere. That's probably the biggest one that we have encountered. <laughs> I, I definitely, uh, when I'm, when I'm dealing with things kind of personally, uh, I definitely have a mix of the, um, of my professional brain versus my consumer brain. Mm. And so like, I get, you know, I'll get the emails for the updates for Frosthaven, you know, once every month yeah. or two. <laughs> And my consumer brain is going, oh my gosh, it's still not here. Come on. That was so long ago. And my professional brain is going, holy shit, the logistics that these poor people have to deal with for such a massive undertaking. And, and so you kind of, you bounce back and forth between those two things. Yeah, it's true. I think it's, it's so much easier to lean on the side of the, like, oh, those, you know, the poor, the huge process and have sympathy now that everyone can has learned. I think most people have learned a lot more about how the supply chain works, right? If you didn't before, if you just sort of didn't work in an industry that delivered a thing, you might not even know how that all works or all the pieces that are are involved or all the people that are involved. And I do think that there's more compassion now that people see how complex it is. It's kind of amazing that we ever get anything on time, really. <laughs> it really is. It's uh, it's quite incredible. Um, now I was curious if you have any thoughts on the way kind of gaming uh, as a developing medium, like how, how has interest changed, you know, because you mentioned, you know, the explosion of D and D, um, but also we get tons and tons of indie games. You see this in tabletop board games. You also see it in, um, you know, video games. I, I play tons of video games to the point where I mostly play indie, indie games these days. And I'm kind of curious how uh, maybe the types of games that people play have has shifted. You know, it's it's sort of so I'm so hesitant to speak on a larger scale because I feel like I can only speak from my perspective. So with that in mind, um, I feel like there's this interesting there, there's been this sort of resurgence of, of old school Renaissance games where. And, and even that's kind of breaking apart into sort of two groups, one that is really more old school values, I'll say, and then one that's just really loves old school games. And so that's kind of, that's been interesting to watch that sort of rise and then break into two. Um, I do think that people, I think that people are playing a lot more um, online because of the COVID situation. And so I think that 
companies that can offer an online, I don't know, like platform in which to play games are are probably seeing a lot of, of probably seeing a surge. I don't know for sure, but it seems like that would be the case. And then I think also people are are a lot more people are watching games being played than ever before. I mean, that's just a new part of our industry of, you know, live play and and all those kinds of things. And and that's really interesting because it's it's taking this it's taking these sort of two groups that want to do two different things in some aspects, right? And and one is the players and one is the viewers. And I think a lot of times viewers also are players or want to be players, but don't have a group or don't have access or don't have the things that they need to be consistent. And so like these two really interesting elements are coming together to create something that's really quite new. And and so we're one of the things that I think we're seeing is the rise of like professional GMs or professional groups, because playing a game in which you are being watched in that way is very, I mean, it, it's very acting heavy. It's very voice work heavy. It isn't the same as sitting around at home. And so there's been a little bit of interesting conversation about like, well, my game doesn't play like the games I watch and am I doing it wrong? And of course you're not doing it wrong. You just don't happen to be a professional actor or voice actor and have a group of other actors with you who are who are playing, but are playing with the understanding that people are are viewing them or are viewing the story. And so I think there's there's some, trepidation among people who feel who are seeing these you know live plays who who don't understand why their game isn't like that and and that's I don't want to say it's unfortunate because I think live plays are awesome but it's it makes it always makes me sad when someone feels like they can't do a thing because they're not doing it to some sort of hidden standard um so I think that one of the things that have has happened a lot is like sort of educating people that of course their game is not like that they don't, you know, they, they, they their game is not going to be like that unless that's the thing that they want to make. And then it requires work and time experience and those kinds of that's, things. That's really interesting. I, have you guys seen the, um, have you guys seen an uptick in your percentage of sales that are digital versus uh, hard copy? Um, we saw... Uh, we saw an uptick in general during the pandemic. It didn't seem to matter too much if they were digital or hard copy, but we definitely saw more people buying games in general, um, kind of across the board. I don't know the numbers well enough to know the difference, but I do think that for a while we, because we offer stuff on our website as well as on drive through RPG. And I think our, I feel like our drive through RPG sales were really high in the first six months of the pandemic, like higher than normal. So so maybe, um, but we also came out with a game specifically designed to be played online. It has like an app. Um, and that was, that was very popular too in the beginning of the pandemic because, you know, you could create a game while having all your pieces on the computer and it was click through. And so we, we did this whole, we did this whole thing because just because it sounded fun and experimental, we thought people are, need something to do. Um, and it came out great. And now we're doing a book version of that. So it's interesting how that game kind of went backwards from, in, in from our normal route. Oh, that's that's actually really funny. I in uh, what game was that? It's called The Darkest House. It's kind of a horror game, and um, so the the app has like maps, and cl- you can click through the room, and you can the GM can get clues, and then you can make it. It's really easy to show all your players the pictures on Zoom or whatever you're using to play on. And so, um, and so now that we just finished putting the book together for The Darkest House, so kind of a cool backwards experience <laughs> that is actually quite cool i i remember early on in the pandemic trying to get a couple of those um oh gosh what's the is it tabletop simulator mm-hmm. um on steam trying to get that to work with a couple of kind of the big games i think we were trying to do pandemic legacy and i remember we, we all got quite frustrated trying to make 
kind of you know like kind of make it work and then and then eventually like i think i think gloomhaven came out with an official game that was online and but but by that time all of us had gone and done our own things and oh, kind yeah. of lost that game night. <laughs> but uh, i got to imagine that there's a there's a few success stories of people that were developing something for that platform for that reason that came out you know, three months into the pandemic and just totally made bank. I think so. Right. It's sort of the, it's sort of the animal crossing kind of experience, right. Where they just happen to have perfect timing for a thing that everybody really, really wanted and needed. Yeah. That, yeah. Sometimes luck is what you need. It is true. It's pretty crazy. Um, now I was just, uh, perusing your Twitter and I noticed (laughs) that you enjoy gardening. Now, do you mind saying where you're located at? Oh no, I, we're outside of Seattle. Okay, I I thought as much, but uh, I I wasn't a hundred percent sure. Um, but it's just so gorgeous and green. Um, there, uh, I've I've learned that there's parts of Seattle that look very much like where I grew up in the Midwest, and uh, specifically in the corner of Ohio that has some actual hills. <laughs> but it's very green and very pretty. Um, what do you, what do you like to garden? You know, I am, (laughs) I'm a sporadic gardener. So my favorite things to garden are things that I can plant when I have the energy to plant something and that sort of survive through (laughs) the the following neglect. (laughs) Um, (laughs) so I, uh, we have like a, about a half of an acre, which is why we live outside of Seattle because nobody can afford that in Seattle. Um, (laughs) and it's, it's a lot of wildflowers. I'm a huge fan of bees and the little things. We have tree frogs and coyotes that come to our yard. And the other day there was a deer eating my strawberries, which I was not super thrilled about because we have a lot of slugs here. The Pacific Northwest is, oh, slug, slug haven. And so if you don't put copper ta- uh, tape around things and raise them, the slugs will just demolish them. And so I put this copper tape around my strawberry things and I raised them and it turns out I raised them right to deer height. Oh. So... <laughs> He was out there just taking giant handfuls of, of ripe strawberries in a single bite. Um, but he was very fun to watch. <laughs> um, and we have bears and, um, like I said, coyotes. I think we saw wolves earlier this year and owls. And we sort of have this, we have green space on two sides. So they kind of use our path as a walkway. So I do a lot of natural stuff, things that, um, you know, the bunnies like and, and all that kind of stuff, which I don't, I'm not 100% sure the neighbors appreciate because, you know, it's a clover lawn and, you know, but the animals appreciate it and I care more about them. <laughs> so. I, uh, I, I was very jealous of your strawberries. I, um, I, I'm, I, I'm one of those people I grew up with like a big garden. My parents were really into like trying to like be self-sufficient and everything. I hated every moment of it as a child, (laughs) but as an adult, I've kind of come to appreciate, you know, when I can get something to grow. And the only thing I've ever been competent at as an adult is raspberries because you like take really good care of them at the beginning of the season, like in March and get them all trimmed properly and set up with some uh, trellises. And then you don't really have to do anything but pick them, Oh yeah, <laughs> which, which awesome. I can deal with. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but man, I, I would love to be able to grow some really proper good strawberries because strawberries are one of those things that when I was a kid, we, my mom would send us to go pick strawberries at like <laughs> local farm. And they were always amazing and delicious, mm-hmm. but any strawberry you can get from like a, a like just a store, they they kind of taste a little acidic and yeah. they're not sweet. And 
I'd, lo- I'd love to learn to grow them myself properly. Yeah, the sugar makes them rot faster, right? So they make the they take the brand the brands no the species varieties varieties. <laughs> I knew I was going to come up with that word eventually. They take the varieties that have less sugar for that kind of shipping, right? So they do. They're always a little white inside, and they don't taste very good. But like sun picked, and they're all warm, and that's absolutely my favorite thing. I I really love that. Um, this the Pacific Northwest is hard for gardening because there's not a, and, and also we have trees on two sides so we have a lot of shade uh so things like tomatoes and stuff are just not they're not possible here so i tend to i tend to grow the things like a lot of lettuce <laughs> and i have snap peas this year and so it's a lot of things that don't care that it's never going to get any sun <laughs> yeah i live in utah where the only way i can grow tomatoes is by putting them in the shade because it's so hot mm. Oh, like yeah. just it's so hot so dry and i tried doing them out in full sun out in the front of the yard and they just withered and died oh, no. <laughs> so quickly yeah. and it got so frustrating oh yeah i would love to grow tomatoes. tomatoes are like the i don't know the acme of, of growing vegetables and i haven't been able to pull it off here <laughs> i i got really good at it in ohio when i lived in ohio but you know but that's like on easy mode because it's wet and it's you know, the, it's raining all the time. You put them in a raised bed and they're pretty much fine. Yeah. But, you know, that's that's how it is sometimes when you've got, you know, like a really a place where things are meant to live, um, which is, right. isn't Utah. Yeah. I grew up in upstate New York and I feel like gardening as a kid was very much like that. You just put a thing in the ground and ta-da! <laughs> when I moved out here, I was like, what is happening? <laughs> Either I don't know how to do this or this is really hard for reasons I haven't figured out. And of course, it was a little bit of both because, you know, every every area has different needs. And I did not yet understand that. <laughs> and it's one of those weird things to learn because gardening as an adult, you know, it, some people genuinely use it as like a source of food for the family and things like that. But I think for most people that garden as an adult, it's it's a little hobby that they do to try to have some joy in nature and outside and in their yard and stuff. And when it's that kind of casual hobby, you don't necessarily get good at uh, testing the soil. And Oh, you know, that's so true. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like, I feel like, which leads me to think, of course, about how we are so we are, we so often take our hobbies and try to monetize them and and how yeah if i don't if i don't have a lot of time for a thing of course i'm not going to get good at it because i don't but but then i run the risk of trying to get good at it and then i think oh i should do it i should make a job out of this which has burnt me in the past so <laughs> same here no that's absolutely burnt me i I did. I did beekeeping for several years, oh, and I, did? I I did, and I loved. I still have all my equipment. I really loved doing it. Um, but like I, every single year, it was like one of those things of, oh man, the weekend where the 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 honey is going to be perfect, and right before a cold snap hits, I really should get out and harvest. Oh, that's the weekend of a convention, oh, you know, yeah. like. I, I started running into kind of the, you know, late fall and, you know, kind of the May conventions for setting things up. And I just, I realized that this is a, a hobby that I don't have the kind of, I don't have the time in the right spots to put the energy into. And I don't know, maybe someday I'll start it up again, but, but it was also really fun. Like in, until those moments where I would think, well, because I'm stretching myself a little bit, maybe I should make money off of this. Should I print off labels? Should I try to sell it a local <laughs> local farmers market and i'm like no i can't do all of that junk yeah you know like but your brain's always kind of trying to say yeah monetize your hobby yeah that temptation is real sometimes that's a bad idea oh yeah 
Right. And it, and it turns a thing of joy into a thing of, of something else, which isn't devoid of joy, but also isn't pure joy the way that a hobby can be. And so I love that you you were a beekeeper, though. I If I was not quite so fickle, I would totally love to keep bees. But I know myself well enough to know that, you know, I really need I need something that doesn't require me to be consistent across time and space because I'm just not just can't do that. Yeah, I, I've found that about myself over the last few years, especially is is that when it comes to hobbies, I am quite fickle and I, I like being able to change them. I like and that's why playing video games is a good hobby, because if I'm not liking a game, I can shut it down and start a new one in 10 yep. seconds. Yes. Oh, the glory of Game Pass, right, is that I, <laughs> I can try out 20 games a month and it doesn't cost me anything. <laughs> and I love that so much. I love I love that first moment of of opening a new game and there's you don't know anything and everything's new and you don't know what what anything does or how to it's just I love that moment so much of course by then and then it's only a few games that make it past that sort of opening joy moment once I figure a thing out I'm like okay am I still liking this game (laughs) or was it just the appeal of something new yeah yeah for me I, I, I can always tell if a game really struck because there's like you know there's the game that I opened it went, nah, I'm not going to play that again and closed it. And, you know, it's got three minutes on Steam, right? Yeah. And then and then there's the game that has 10 hours. And yep. those games, I'm like, oh, well, that was a competently made game. I enjoyed it for a while. Fine. And then there's the games <laughs> that have way too many zeros on, it, on, the hour, on the hour line. And those are the games that you're just like, this is genius. This is brilliant. It struck something inside me that uh, like, I, I don't even know how to express. I mean, that happened, I think, man, did it come out right at the beginning of the pandemic? Uh, have you played Valheim? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yep. That happened to me with Valheim. Valheim just hit me in the place that hit my childhood, like my childhood gamer. Oh, wow. And I've I've put so many hundred hours. It Like that was one of, that was part of the one, one of the things that got me through the through the pandemic. Oh, yeah. it's so good. I'm it's interesting too because I'm very graphic focused. Like I really love beautiful games, which Valheim is sort of, right? I mean, your character is not that great looking. And the fact that I played as much of it as I did considering the graphics, like says how much I loved that game because the graphics are not amazing. I mean, it's a beautiful game in many ways, but it's also sort of like I really want to be able to make my character look like something else. <laughs> Well, and and those I, I've actually found that I really love those kind of style of indie games where mm-hmm. they kind of give up the graphics because the yeah. graphics the graphics have never gotten me as much as gameplay gameplay mechanics. Oh yeah, and uh, and and Valheim's definitely one of those that gave up on graphics in order to make the game really lovable, and I, that's what I like about. Yeah, it. me too. I'm I'm a sucker for games that feel like you can just feel the joy and the love from the creators in the game. And it's a very intangible thing, but it's there and you just, it sucks you in in this really wonderful way. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Well, I have been eating up tons of your afternoon, um, but we like to finish off these episodes by asking a really simple left field question, (laughs) which is, what's the last thing that you ate that blew your mind? Oh, um, boy, the last thing I ate that blew my mind was, Boy, I, it's been so long since I have eaten outside my own cooking and my own house. <laughs> well, it, it can include your own cooking. <laughs> I don't usually blow my mind with my own cooking, unfortunately. Oh, you know, I, 
here's what I will say is the last thing I ate that blew my mind was um, a box of cookies from Crumble Cookies. And there was a peanut butter, Reese's peanut butter or something, something in there. And it was gooey and chocolatey. And I love chocolate and peanut butter anyway. And it was like, they, they delivered them warm. And it was like, it was just, and it was a little salty. And it was one of those things where you just, you eat it so slowly <laughs> because it, it's somehow the perfect, everything came together perfectly to create something so much greater than both your expectations and what it should be, right? Which is what we all hope when we're creating things, <laughs> but it <laughs> happens so rarely. And, and that's, I think that's the last thing that I had that just made me stop and be like, okay, this is, this is where all of your attention is right now. When, uh, when we first moved to Utah about six years ago, we discovered crumble cookie through a friend. Um, and, and I think there was like one in the area at the time and now there's like 12, um, <laughs> but we, we overdid it to the point where, <laughs> where I kind of got over crumble cookie, but yeah. I will admit that their Nutella when they have it is just, really? oh my gosh, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a snickerdoodle with Nutella on it. Oh, yeah. and it's so stupidly good. <laughs> absolutely love it now i want cookies <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm supposed to be off sugar right now so. <laughs> that was game designer shauna germain thanks again to shauna for taking the time to chat you can find links to her website and social media down in the show notes you can find me as always at brianmcclellan.com reminder that we're taking the rest of the summer off but we'll be back with Season 2 of Page Break this fall. In the meantime, you can listen back to your favorite episodes or catch up on those you missed, read In the Shadow of Lightning, and have a good summer. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Huge thanks to Kyle Anderson, Patrick Hunt, Elijah, Jennifer and Angela Johnson, and Ivor Gulickson for their backing on Patreon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.